and maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll get to enjoy it next time. We all find ourselves um, occasionally in positions of leadership. Now, some of us, that has to do with our job. Uh, we, have, we have people here who are on the boards of large companies, and we have uh, folks here who, who manage something in some way. Uh, we have parents. You know, that's a leadership position. Uh, whether you're permanently in a position of leadership, you, you probably will at some time find yourself leading other people. And one thing that really happens uh, that, that makes us... It's not good if you're a leader is, is when things start happening that are weird. Like, say you're at a company and all of a sudden your productivity just drops. You don't know why. That's weird. Or maybe you're a parent and your kids have been playing in the other room and all of a sudden you can't hear them anymore. And you have loud and noisy, rowdy kids. So the fact that you can't hear them, well, that's... That's really weird. And we don't like weirdness. Uh, leaders don't like when, when they don't know what is going on. It's that, that space of unknowing that you know, anything could be happening there. Anything could be going on. And so when something like that happens, we have to find out what it is. We have to uh, go in there and check on the kids. We have to uh, investigate in some way because weirdness it can become unmanageable. It could be something, it can maybe even be something dangerous. We have here in this story uh, a story of religious leaders who are getting nervous with Jesus because Jesus is kind of weird. He's been traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem with this strange entourage of followers. He's been performing miracles and people uh, you know, fantastic things are happening around him. And he's also preaching this message and sending people out into towns to preach this message. The kingdom of God is near. It's coming. And if you're a religious leader at that time, you're seeing all this happening. You see, you're, you're watching him head to the, the, the central city of, of their religion, the holy city of Jerusalem, and you're thinking to yourself, at least, this is, this is kind of weird. So we have one leader, uh, a lawyer, an expert in the law. And he decides that he needs to investigate Jesus. He needs to find out what exactly it is that Jesus is up to. What is he teaching these people? What is he all about? And he's kind of a sneaky guy. I, I would think that if I was going to want to find out about somebody... Uh, especially somebody I think might be kind of dangerous, maybe I'll interrogate them a little bit. You know, who are you? What is it that you're trying to do here? Uh, why are you going to Jerusalem? Why are you taking this big crowd? Who do you think you are? But he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't set out to interrogate Jesus. Instead, he asks a very simple question. And it's a question that anybody might ask. Any of the people who have heard about some of the things Jesus has been teaching might ask this question. It's a very earnest question. What must I do to be saved? Now, the reason I say that this is sneaky is because he's an expert in the law. And maybe he was trying to hide that fact, but Jesus, being who Jesus is, he sees through 
he sees through any facade. He sees this guy's heart, and he knows that he is an expert in the law. So he turns the question to him. Well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And so he answers. And the first answer that the lawyer gives is, it is an answer that probably any Jew would have given. It stems from the central statement of faith for the Jewish people. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Very basic answer. Very good answer. The second thing that he says is, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from a completely different passage of the Torah. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And so what he does is he takes this love God with everything that you have and he connects it with love your neighbor as yourself, assuming that there's some connection between the two. This expert in the law really knows his stuff. This is a fantastic answer. And Jesus says, yeah, you are absolutely right. Good. You have identified the heart of the law of Moses. All of that just boiled down to its essence. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is, that is the essence of the law of Moses. That is the essence of Jesus' own teaching. That is the essence of the gospel. And he says, you got it right. Good. Now, go and do that. I think that maybe this wasn't the way the conversation was supposed to go. It's like a teacher trying to give a pop quiz, answering a kid's question, and being patted on the back by the student. Good job. I'm trying to trap Jesus here, and he's telling me, hey, you got the right answer. Good. I was testing him. I, I, was, I said here, I said about to test this guy to find out what he was about, and he's telling me, hey, yeah, good job. You got it. So he asks, he asks a follow-up question. He says, okay, love your neighbor as yourself, but who exactly is my neighbor? And this is an interesting question. You know, back when this law was written, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus, it was, it was a little bit more clear who our neighbor was. In the context of uh, Leviticus 19, you, you find these passages. You shall not hate anyone in your heart who is your kin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Your kin, your people, your neighbor. The writer there seems to make those look interchangeable. And so it's kind of clear that what is being talked about in Leviticus is the nation of Israel, your people. And that's, I get that. You know, all of the people that are in my nation, the nation of, that, that, that God has made this wonderful covenant with, those are my neighbors. Those are my people. Now, that also helps me understand who isn't my neighbor. Who might be a stranger, uh, somebody from a, a different nation, a different ethnic group, coming in and, and being with us. They're strangers. They're not my neighbors. They're not my people. I'm going to treat them well, but they're not, it's not the same thing. 
Or what about the people who set themselves against Israel or set themselves against Israel's God? Who are they? Well, we know that. They're our enemies. So we have our neighbors and we have our enemies. If you read the book of Psalms, you'll see those two, uh, the, those two groups of people uh, being talked about in very clearly distinct ways. The enemies are the enemies of Israel. The enemies are the, Isra- are, are the enemies of God. And so some of the strongest language in Psalms, uh, Psalm 83, for example, is all about God's enemies and how, and how he treats them. And so we have this very clear distinction. I, I know my neighbors, and I know my enemies. It's this us versus them language. That's, that's a world that makes sense. I, I know who's a part of us, we, and I know who they are, them. The problem is that Judea in the first century looks a little bit different than that. There's no nation of Israel anymore. And Judea itself is just a province of this larger empire. And so from day to day, a Jewish person just carrying out his business in a city will probably encounter Greek merchants, Roman city officials, soldiers who have been uh, drafted from any part of the world. Just there, even in a small city, you could come in contact with so many different kinds of people. And so you might think, okay, well, Jews, you know, Jews are still a people group. That's still an ethnic group. But the problem with that is there are so many kinds of Jews with different ethnic backgrounds. There are different religious ideas about what it means to be a Jew in this, in this, in this world, in this new world. If you look in the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it, it lists all of these different places that the Jews have come into Jerusalem from. Everywhere from Italy all the way to Iran. Just spread out. And so these people have different languages, they have different cultures, they have different systems of belief. And so, yeah, this guy's a Jew, but you know, he, he looks nothing like me, he doesn't sound like me, he doesn't think like me. Is this guy my neighbor? It's all messy and confusing. It's a world of mixed up identities and allegiances. And so when we talk, when he asks, or when uh, the lawyer says, you know, love your enemy as yourself, and he asks what that means, he's asking Jesus to help him define all that and just sort all this out for him. Who is my neighbor? Who is in this group of people that I am supposed to love? How do I define us? And how do I define them. Us and them have become the language of our culture, too. You know, we don't live in a world that has very distinct groups of people anymore. We're all just kind of mixed together. And so the people that we encounter might be people with vastly different systems of belief than us, different uh, different uh, backgrounds and different ways of thinking. And we don't call them necessarily enemies. I mean, not all the time. You know, sometimes somebody has hurt you and has caused you pain and, and you, they really are your enemy. But oftentimes we just run into people who are different, just weird, just different than us. 
And we can call them different things. Sometimes we call them, oh, you know, crazy liberal. Or like nutty conservative. You know? The Republicans. The Democrats. See, our political language is just filled with this kind of us versus them language. Maybe a little exercise to kind of help you, you think about who in your mind might you have written off as an enemy? What, what kind of group do you, might you identify as somebody you're definitely not? Uh, this is a, a political exercise, and I, I use politics because it's just, right now it's just so full of this us, them, and it's all over. It's all over our culture. So here's a sentence, and just fill in the blank. Our country is going down the toilet because of blank. Our culture is going to bad places in handbaskets because of blank. You know, we have people who, who they believe different things. They have different visions about, about what a good life constitutes, different value systems than we do. They have different beliefs about God. They have different beliefs about things like relationships and, and, and the value of, of a person's life. There are so many different groups of people with different ideas about how to live and how to think and how to be in this world. And so we set up boundaries between ourselves, these little ideological boundaries. I don't really associate with that person because we just do not agree. Every time we get together, it would be a big argument, so I separate from them. I'm not a part of them. I'm not a part of that group. So we have these ideological boundaries. But that's not the only thing that separates us from each other. You know, 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, we still have black and white neighborhoods. You know, race is still, is still a component that helps us determine who it is that we're really connected to, who we really have stuff in common with. And so it separates us. Class. You know, if I'm a, an upper-middle-class guy, am I going to be spending a Saturday afternoon uh, with my friends who live in low-income housing? Not, I'm not talking about serving them. I'm not talking about doing mission work. I'm just talking about hanging out because we're friends. I'm not hanging out with my poor friends. I'm hanging out with Bob and Ann. We just have this connection that transcends all that. But that's not often the case. We still live in this world of us versus them. So there's this question then, who is actually my neighbor? And he, in, in the context that he asks it in, it, there's, there's an implied question. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I am supposed to love? And then kind of implied in that is, who is it that I don't have to love? It's that us versus them. Jesus' answer is this. If you want to persist in a world of us versus them, I've got a story for you. A man gets beaten up. And the people who you think would help this guy 
priest, a Levite. Presumably this man's Jewish, so people in his own ethnic and religious background, those people, they don't help him. So your expectation about who my neighbor is, if that's all it is, if, if it's not connected to something like love, it's kind of meaningless. But a Samaritan, this guy's cultural and religious enemy, a Samaritan, somebody whom you don't like, this guy shows up and he demonstrates immense love and compassion for the man. He mends his wounds, he gives up the use of his donkey, he pays for an inn, he stays the night with him. And who knows what all happened during that night, how many bandages had to be changed and thrown away and cleaned up. His sympathy, his compassion and love for this guy stirs up in him an overwhelming amount of generosity. So which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the hurt man? Well, it's the one whom that man had every reason to consider his enemy. Now, we might have to do some imaginative, you know, mind games to figure out, you know, who our enemies are. But there are some parts of the world where it's very clear. Uh, somebody right after service, uh, early service, came up to me and was talking to me about Israel and Palestine. If you want to see a world that resembles this world, a world of Jews and Samaritans, you take a look at the world of Israel and Palestine, people living right next to each other, neighbors by proximity, who have every reason just to absolutely hate each other, and they do. Okay, there, we, we sometimes, sometimes we know very clearly who our neighbors are, I mean, who our enemies are, and sometimes we don't. For these guys, it's incredibly clear. Um, the Samaritan had every reason in the world to walk by. But he doesn't. There's all that religious and cultural hostility between them. There's all these reasons that he should have walked away, but he doesn't. He bends down to care for him. And in doing so, he breaks all of those barriers. He just pushes through them. Those Differences, that, that, that racial and cultural difference, their religious disagreements, all of those collapse. They just don't matter to him anymore. All he sees when he sees that man lying there is somebody who is in need of help. And so his love transforms their relationship from one of hostility, one of natural enmity, to love and to friendship. He becomes this man's neighbor and he invites the man to be his. There's a, there's a slight difference between the question that the lawyer started out with and the answer that he gets. The, the question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story, and then he said, who was, who was a neighbor to the man? See, we don't just love the people who happen to be our neighbors. That's not what we're being called to in this parable. It's not what we're being called to in the life of Christ. We are called instead to become neighbors by acting in love. 
See, God's love compels us to create neighbors out of strangers, even out of enemies. Even though the barriers and the boundaries and the prejudices that keep us separated from each other are very strong. We have all kinds of walls of hostility in our culture. We have all kinds of reasons for keeping people at arm's length and separated from ourselves. And even those deeper boundaries, the the boundaries of, of pain, of woundedness, they keep us from connecting with people. And they define for us who our enemies are. If you've ever seen... If you've ever seen somebody who has had a loved one who has been murdered, killed, you would think that they would have every reason in the world to hate that person who did it. That's an enemy. That's clear. And it's completely reasonable. It's completely natural for them to see that person as their enemy. But every now and then, Every now and then, that expectation is completely shattered by somebody who in a courtroom or through a letter or, you know, this this might pop up on the news sometimes, where they forgive that person who murdered their family members. And sometimes they even later become friends with them. We have... Uh, we have these enemies, we have reasons for not connecting with people. Sometimes we fear that if we do connect with somebody, somebody who is just somebody I'm supposed to hate, then we're doing something wrong. So there's a guy, he's a doctor, and he works in an abortion clinic. And I help the guy, and I maybe even befriend him. And all of a sudden, people start asking me questions like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with that person? Are you compromising your morals? Are you compromising your ethical beliefs? You know, we have reasons for staying behind those walls. Fear is a big one. You know, we have, we have reasons to fear people. Whether, and I'm not talking just about, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that if I hang out with this guy, people are going to look at me weird. I'm talking about real fear. Uh, you make friends with somebody who has just recently uh, been paroled. And you enter into a relationship with them, and you're just friends with them, and they're just friends with you. And you hang out, and your friendship grows, and, 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 and a trust develops. But at the beginning of that relationship, there was an element of risk, wasn't there? Maybe this person isn't really rehabilitated. Maybe he still has a violent streak. Can I really trust him around maybe my kids? You know, crossing those boundaries entails risk. We push through that. Because of that, I can maybe understand why the priest and the Levite walk by. There are two reasons that they have to fear this guy, fear helping this person. The first is that he might be dead. And if he's dead and they reach down and they touch him, then they're touching a dead body and, and they become ceremonially unclean. And for the priest, that could be especially problematic if he's on his way to perform some religious duty. So 
Better safe than sorry. Or I am walking down a road that is notorious for robbers and bandits. This guy lying here is evidence that they're about, that they're, they're somewhere around here. And so if I bend down and start helping him, I'm leaving myself completely vulnerable to being attacked myself. And so it's best that I just keep myself safe. But the Samaritan, he has those problems too. He faces that same risk as well, and he pushes through it. He could be attacked. He could be uh, ostracized by his fellow Samaritans for helping an enemy. But he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't let that stop him from doing what he is compelled to do. Sin has infected humanity so that we have good reasons to fear each other. It, the, the, the sin of the world has just created all of these boundaries and all of these walls, and, and it really just makes a whole lot of sense for us to stay inside of them. But when we act in love, we at least start participating in the process of dismantling those walls and redeeming these relationships and bringing people back to one another. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ who does that. It's Jesus who brings us together. Paul writes in Ephesians about the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he writes in chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. When we come to Christ, all those reasons that we have for separating ourselves, they just fall away. So we need to let God train us to see people as our neighbors, simply because they're humans, simply because God loves them, and he wants to save them just as he saved us. We must see people the way that Jesus sees them, and we must never be afraid to cross whatever boundaries we need to to reach them. Now, I am preaching this in a church that does this all the time. This is what's actually really cool. This church is a church that is constantly seeking strangers and, and maybe even enemies to become their friends. If you have a bulletin, uh, would you mind opening it up? There's a little note, a little advertisement on the third page. That's for the Rush Street Ministries Neighborhood Block Party. On July 28th at 6 o'clock, here's what's going to happen. This church with some neighbors down the road are going to party. That's what we're going to do. There's going to be food. It's going to be fun. It's going to be just a great time of celebrating life together and to making new connections with one another and becoming neighbors and becoming friends. So I want to invite you to come to this. I want to invite you to come because it's going to be fun. I want you to come and just enjoy it and have a great time. But I want to offer just a slight caution. With Rush Street, as with any other charitable organization, sometimes we, we kind of come to this with that same us-them idea. We are going to help them. We are going to serve them. Uh, not just, this, this isn't just true of Rush Street. If you think of um, 
uh, well, we have, we have a mission team right now in Brazil and one in Africa. And so with missions, you can still kind of get in that same mind. We are going to them. There's that separation. Bob Knox and I were talking about this the other day. We were talking about the, uh, the blog party that was coming up. And he told me this story. He said that they had taken the, uh, the cow, the, our closet on wheels uh, that we use to give out clothing to people. And he said a woman approached Bob and she told him that CPS had just given her custody of her granddaughter. Uh, but whatever happened was, was so bad that they had to take the girl out of her home and place her immediately. So all the clothes she had were the clothes that were on her back. And so could this girl please go and get some clothes? And so, of course, Bob, you know, shows her up into the trailer and uh, lets her shop around a little bit. And she gets what she needs and she comes out. And she says, I've got these clothes for school, but my shoes that I have, they, they don't really fit very well. So can I just give them to you so that you can give to somebody else so that they'll have shoes? You see, we're all participating in what's going on at Rush Street. Rush Street, the pe- some of the people who work the hardest to bless that neighborhood are the people who live there. And so come with us on the 28th, and we'll be making friends, and we'll be making neighbors, and it's going to be a great time. I'm going to end just on that pitch. Come to Rush Street. Um, we have a, a moment here of invitation. So if you have something that you need to deal with, something that's on your heart, or something that you want to share with this community, something you need prayers for, uh, please come find. We ha- we'll have elders and ministers kind of around the room uh, waiting and, and willing to talk to you about those things. So come as we stand and sing this song.